This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I completely ruptured the center fuel tank. So there was a couple of inches of 100 low lead in the belly of my airplane and my feet were soaked in 100 low lead. The the tank had split pretty well. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden, and in this episode, we're talking to one of North America's most decorated aerobatic pilots and recognized aviation professionals, Michael Goulian. For the past 30 years, Michael has had an impressive career in the world of airshow flying and competition aerobatics. In 1990, he became the youngest pilot to become the U.S. National Advanced Aerobatic Champion at the age of 22. In 1995, he became the U.S. National Champion in the Unlimited category, and he was a member of the U.S. Aerobatic Team in 94, 96, and 98. In 2006, Michael joined the Red Bull Air Race World Championships flying under the number 99, and he's been flying with this elite group of pilots ever since. When we recorded this interview with Michael, he was getting ready to compete in the season opener for the Red Bull Air Race World Championships in Abu Dhabi. I'm happy to say that he went on to win that competition. Congratulations, Michael. So let's tune into the Skype call I held with Michael just a short while back. Michael, thank you for joining us today. I know we caught you in between international travel trips and you're on your way out to Abu Dhabi. So thanks for joining the There I Was podcast. Oh, thanks, Richard. It's uh it's exciting to be on the podcast and now also exciting to be looking at an, uh, a trip over to Abu Dhabi for our first race of the year. So we don't really have an off season right now with the Red Bull Air Race and Air Shows both, but we're excited to just to get started again. Yeah, that's great. And good luck this season. Uh, we'll have a lot of fun rooting for you and just watching you as you go. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so you and I go back a ways. We've known each other since I was flying the F-15 demo in about uh, 89 or so. Uh, I think you'd only been in the business uh, a couple years at that point, if I'm right. So uh, you've had a very successful career. And so congratulations on all the flying you've done and your championships and most of all for doing it so safely. Oh, Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, obviously the same to you. And yeah, 1989 was really the first year I started flying air shows and uh, competition aerobatics as well. I started about 1987 and you know, it's just with a lot of luck and a lot of people supporting me, I've been lucky to to have had a great career in this business. So uh, it's through things like this that it's fun to give back. And 
share some of the lessons that I've learned with other pilots. Michael, through all that exciting flying you've done in the air racing and the aerobatics and the competition and sometimes just flying to and from all that stuff, you must have had some pretty interesting situations. Do you have any that come to mind that our audience might be interested in hearing about and, and sort of how you got out of it? Well, yeah, you know, it's very funny. A lot of people, when I meet them for the first time, knowing what I do for a living, they say, ah, oh, did you ever have a close call? And the funny thing is not so much in the aerobatic or the race planes as much as the everyday airplanes that I, and I wouldn't call them close calls, but I would just call them uh, abnormalities or emergencies. And, you know, one that, that comes to mind was back about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I owned a Cessna 182 RG and used that for traveling to and from air shows. And I was coming back to my home airport at Hanscom Field and the weather wasn't terrible. It was probably around 800 overcast or so and the tops were around 3,000 feet. So descended down into the overcast right uh, outside of Boston. They were entering Bedford's airspace was vectored onto a base and turned final onto the ILS and coming down to the ILS and reached the outer marker and go to put the landing gear down and the handle goes down, but there's nothing else that happens. Mm, wow. And so here I am coming down through about, uh, I guess it's about 1100 feet and looking to see, you know, what's wrong with this thing and clearly realized that there's just no way I could land out of this situation. So did a go around and told ATC what was going on and they wanted to give, they wanted to level me off at 2000 feet and put me into the, the standard missed approach procedure. But knowing that I was going to be doing a lot of maneuvering to try to figure out what was wrong with the landing gear and my attention would be completely distracted from flying the airplane. I told them, I said, hey, I don't want to do that. What I really want to do is break out of the top of the clouds back into the sunshine. And why don't you guys get me on a heading going in a direction that's going to take me away from all of the traffic and let me sort the situation out. So they, they said, stand by. And uh, I proceeded with the execution of the missed approach as they, as they wanted, as it was depicted. But then a couple seconds later, they came back and said, yeah, turn turn to this heading, your uh, climber maintain 4,000 feet, and you can have a block of airspace between four and 5,000, and we'll be watching in you and let, let us know what you want to do. Um, so climbed out of the top of the clouds, got the airplane straight and level, was able to put it on autopilot, and then started to figure out what was wrong with the situation and actually had to uh, do the emergency gear extension to get the gear down, and then came back and and landed the airplane just fine and, uh, you know, lived to fight another day, as they say. Yeah, so a couple of interesting things that you did there, Michael. So one, if I heard you right, when you go to put the gear down, you're in the weather, right, at that time? In the weather, correct, yeah, in the class. That complicates things, right? So, I mean, first thing that's probably going through your mind is, uh, all right, uh, you know, number one, You've got to make sure you fly the airplane. You're in IMC conditions, and you've got to keep control of the airplane. Number one, fly the airplane. And so you're thinking, I'm flying the approach. The gear doesn't come down. All right, let me just take a few minutes and think about this. But number one, fly the airplane. And don't let myself get disoriented or distracted. So how do you uh, – what's your thought process, Michael, in those kinds of situations? 
Well, yeah, Richard, you're absolutely right. The first thing is a little bit of disbelief because you, you know, you throw the handle, you're waiting for the gear to, to start to come down and all the noise from the motor and nothing happens. So you immediately start to think about, okay, what's going on here? And for me, the biggest thing was, all right, just remain calm. There's nothing, you know, really wrong. Uh, you have plenty of cushion underneath you. I was coming through about a thousand feet and Really, there was no option other than to do a go around. And the first thing that I thought about was just get out of the weather. Yep. Get in the clear if you can. Right. And that was the biggest thing is I didn't want to lose situational awareness uh, and have a loss of control incident there in the weather. So the, the one thing, I, as I look back on it, that maybe a, a more inexperienced pilot uh, might have succumbed to was ATC said, you know, you're cleared to go to the published hold at 2,000 feet and start a holding pattern when it would have been a really, really dangerous situation. And if you just explain to the controller, hey, that's not the right thing to do. I need to be here and I need to be there to be safe. Uh, I think they're going to comply with that most of the time. And I had not declared an emergency, but if they didn't give me those instructions that I wanted, I would have declared an emergency and then I would have been able to get what I wanted. So that's the other thing is to always know that um, – your safety as a pilot and the passengers in your airplane is is foremost and don't let the controllers fly the airplane for you even though they're on they're just trying to do their best and put you in a system but uh it's you that's making the decision in the airplane and that's something that i try to impress upon uh student pilots and younger pilots is that the pilot in command is sitting in the left seat of the airplane, and you're not talking to the pilot in command at any time. Michael, our listeners will hear a trend from uh, – we just did a podcast with Mark Baker, and uh, he had a similar situation where it was at night. He lost an engine in a Baron right after takeoff, and ATC, trying to be helpful, uh, gave him an altitude, but it just wasn't the right altitude for that situation. And he did what you did. Uh, you know, He said, uh, nope, I, I don't want that altitude. I need to go to this altitude for this reason. And sure enough, you know, they cleared him uh, to where he wanted to go. Uh, and, and to your point, you know, they, they almost always will. And it's, it's tough for us to remember. They don't have all the SA. They're trying to do their best, but uh, they really do want to help you. And the second thing that comes to mind is this really tragic incident that uh, we did a case study on that's on our website where a gentleman flew over Dover Air Force Base and really minimum fuel. He'd gone misapproach several times and was en route to an alternate. Um, and didn't have enough fuel to get there. He asked if he could land at Dover, and the controller said, no, not unless it's an emergency. And he just said, okay. And uh, the outcome of that was tragic uh, when he could have just landed right then and there at Dover, and declaring an emergency would not have been a big deal. So you make a good point. And, you know, Michael, another interesting thing you did there is that you wanted to get back up into the clear when you had the gear situation, so you could have more time to just assess the situation and figure out what you had going on. But importantly, you asked for a block altitude to give you a little bit of maneuvering room so you didn't have to be so exact because the, that's what you, not what you needed to focus on at that time. That's a great idea. Talk to us about that. Well, when I, was, when I had broken out of the top of the clouds, uh, and then was allowed to start to look at the situation. I asked for a block altitude because I didn't know that perhaps maybe the gear would come down partially, and then by putting a little bit of positive G on the airplane, it might pull the gear down and lock it into place. So I was thinking that I might have to climb up a little bit, get a little bit of speed on the airplane, and pull you know two, two and a half, three Gs 
on this airplane just to try to get the gear to come down. But as uh, as it turns out, I just let the gear free fall. I got three green and, and came back in and landed the airplane just fine. But again, one of those things, just wanted to give myself the option and uh, just have everything available to me if I needed it. And I felt just being able to not have to worry about altitude and then to be able to use the altitude if I needed it uh, was important. Yes. And then just to utilize ATC like you did sort of as an assistant to, to help you almost that, hey, what I really need is a block altitude. And it kind of goes back to, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of seeing your mindset here, Michael, where you're flying and you're taking command of the situation. It's your airplane, it's your situation, and you're going to ask for what you need. And that's something that really stands out to me here is just confidently taking control of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, You know, from the very first um, instruction I got from my dad and from his flight instructors, and then I had some great mentors in the corporate aviation world that also cemented that in me is that, you know, we are the masters of our own destiny. We're flying the airplane. This is our machine to fly. And whether it's a beautiful day or the weather's turned on us or our airplane is happy or it's having a bad day, everybody is relying on us to make the right decision and uh, try not to let anybody else in your cockpit to fly your airplane. That's great advice. You also make an interesting point in uh, the to and from part of it. Uh, you know, as I led the Thunderbirds across the country for a couple of years, people would always ask me the same kinds of questions they would ask you, which is, you know, did you have any close calls and, and where did you have the, the possibility of an incident? I think they were probably surprised and a little bit bored when I would tell them that really the most challenging thing was going to and from the show sites, you know? It, it clearly is. And I'm guessing whether you're in an F-16 with uh, six guys or five guys hanging off your wing, five guys and girls, or... Uh, it's in a light aerobatic airplane. Now with the advent of you know, GPS and synthetic vision, it's getting a little bit easier, but uh, it's still the same. And you know, to talk about going back to the gentleman that uh, flew over the, the Dover airport, it was interesting. I was at the Red Bull Air Race in uh, Russia last year, and on race day, the weather was quite challenging. There were some low clouds some scud around and quite a bit of rain and we were operating out of an automotive racetrack was uh, our temporary runway which was probably about 12 miles away from the racetrack itself which was over the water and so halfway between the the racetrack and the operating place where we were was the big russian military base and they sat there in the briefing and said if you absolutely 100% need to land at the base, go ahead and do it and don't worry about it. And, you know, uh, when I came time for me to race, it was raining pretty good. And I, I exited the racetrack and I was in the holding pattern and I made my way and I knew where that base was. And then I got to the edge of the runway at the base and I was circling. And remember, now we're down to 30 minutes of fuel, just just a few gallons left in the fuel tank yeah. uh, on a race plane that uses a lot of gas, and we're in Russia, and the GPSs don't work, so it's all dead reckoning, and it's raining, and I was just I would do a 360 and try to find what I knew was the direction to the to the race airport to get home, but I I said I'm not going to leave the comfort of this base before I head off going towards uh, the, the runway to get to get back home. And I was thinking, how funny would it be that 
uh, our first race in Russia, and here's an American that lands on a Russian military base out of fuel. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. You know, but uh, again, that's the thing: is a piece of pavement is a piece of pavement, um, and no matter whether it's at Nellis Air Force Base or Dover Air Force Base or a place in Russia, I think in the end we're all pilots. And uh, a pilot in need, everybody understands that and never overlook something that's right underneath you like that. Yeah, it seems to me what catches people is that uh, the comment they made to you that, well, if you're 100 uh, percent absolutely sure, you have to do it. And you find yourself in that gray area where now you begin second guessing yourself, right? Well, do I meet that threshold? Do I really absolutely have to do it? And the answer in my mind is if you're having to think that hard about it, then yes, you have to do it and it meets that threshold. That's good enough for me, you know? Same with me. I totally agree. Yeah, Michael, shifting gears a little bit, you must have had some interesting situations in terms of uh, low altitude flying. There's been a lot of discussion about low altitude flying and general aviation pilots down in the low altitude arena. Obviously, you do that for a living. Uh, with not only with your races, but your aerobatics. I wonder if you could just share with us some of the things that you think about, um, because that's got to be a very busy time for you in those uh, air races. But at the same time, uh, the very basics are you've got to keep your flying airspeed and you've got to keep from running into the ground. So you can uh, maybe talk us through a little bit of what goes through your mind when you're in that very low altitude environment and how do you plan for that? Yeah, absolutely, Richard. I I think it's, uh, whether it's the races or it's the air show flying itself, uh, the races are very structured, but the air show environment, uh, as you know, it's just you out there flying your performance. And most of what keeps me safe flying in that type of environment is really just a lot of precision. And then more importantly than that, predictability and then lastly, understanding your airplane. So when I say precision, doing the same thing every time. So if somebody comes to watch me at an air show in March and then they watch me again in November, you're going to see the same air show with the same narration, uh, hopefully a little bit more polished in November than it was in March. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, but you're going to see the same sequence and the same maneuvers. And that's the idea behind it is to do it the same every time and and that keeps you safe um, and then you know, repetition and then obviously understanding your airplane itself so every maneuver that I do I know the number meaning the speed that I need at the bottom of that maneuver when I'm near the ground to safely execute the maneuver at the top mm-hmm. so if it's a looping maneuver with a tumble at the top I know that I'll need 200 or 205 or 210 indicated at the bottom to be safe at that altitude at the top Mm -hmm. because the altimeter doesn't work very well in these light airplanes when you're going up and down at eight and 9,000 feet a minute, uh, the altimeters lag. So it's really visual out the window and then your speed and then also understanding the energy state of my airplane at any time. So It can be, for instance, you're at Oshkosh when it's 90 degrees and it's pretty hot outside and the air is really mushy, as we'd say in the airshow business. And instead of having 200, you've got 180 or 185. And then I I know the maneuvers that are coming up and I know that I can't do those maneuvers at 180, 185. I need 200. So what I'll start to do is just ease off on the G 
on on the preceding maneuvers to try and get the aircraft's energy back. So I'm always thinking about how much energy do I have and do I have enough? And if I don't have enough, I start to immediately correct it. And then if I get to a critical maneuver, for instance, like a loop with a double or a triple flip at the top, a tumble at the top, if I don't have the speed at the bottom, I'll just do a triple snap roll at the top instead of a tumble. So the airplane stays completely in control. It's in the safety window and we can go on. Most people would never know that I made a change, but it's a huge change to me. And when I think about people flying around low level that aren't used to it, they, the big thing that they're missing is the understanding of how much energy is left in the wing. Yeah. Right. Especially, and that's the big thing that I think, uh, you know, the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels and and all of the airshow pilots understand is how much energy is left in the wing. Meaning, how much, how hard can I pull on this airplane before it stalls? And if you're not very comfortable in that environment, uh, it's not a great place to be. Yeah, those are some great things for our audience to consider, especially in light of some recent accidents. And uh, in one, your discussion about energy management is so helpful to people, I think. Because, you know, uh, we had a couple accidents recently where people at low altitude, the pilots just got their nose buried too low, and given the energy and the power available in the, in the plane they were flying, and, and this speaks to your know your airplane comment, um, they simply just didn't have the ability to get out of that sink rate, and, and the nose got buried too low. And so, so that speaks to two of your points, and the third one about the predictability and the precision uh, kind of makes the point I think of, um, we're trying to encourage people Low-altitude flying like they see you and the other professionals do is not something that you just do on a whim. You don't just suddenly say, oh, I think I'll just drop down here and fly along this river for a bit uh, because you got the potential for towers and power lines and all kinds of things with just a little bit of map study or just a little bit of uh, review before you drop down there is uh, so helpful. Absolutely. You know, I was just out in San Diego giving a presentation to uh, the Cirrus partners out there, and, and the thing that I told them was to do it the same every single time, whether it's your checklist, whether it's uh, a trim check or putting the flaps down, uh, shooting an approach, do it exactly the same every time. And that keeps you safe. Do the, the run up at the same place, put the flaps down at the same time, have the trim in the same place. And that repetition and that consistency is going to keep you safe. How about a sequence or a checklist flow? So say you're going through one of your checklist and your flows right before you're ready to take off, or maybe shoot an approach or, or something or after run up and you get interrupted. You get a call or a clearance comes through or, or something distracts you from that checklist or that flow. Do you tend to go back and pick it up from the very beginning uh, or do you feel comfortable enough going right back to the middle of and picking it up where it is? I've heard a couple different techniques on that. I make sure unless it's somebody calling me urgently, I always try to finish the checklist that I'm working on. Got it. Yeah. So uh, unless I do I, – so I will let ATC wait a second I'll finish the checklist, I'll do what I'm doing, and then I'll call them back. Uh, that's just sort of one of the things that I do to try, to try to finish that. And then in any airplane, before I take the runway, there's just a few essential items that have to be checked. And like, for instance, on a Cirrus, it's the doors, the boost pump, the mixture, and the flaps. If you have those four things um, in the correct position, 
most likely there's nothing else that's going to hurt you. You could have take hurt. You could have left the lights off or whatever. It doesn't yeah. matter. But those four things. So whenever I take the runway uh, in my Cirrus, it that's exactly what I do. I go doors, boost pump, mixture, flaps, and the airplane I know is going to fly. In the in the race plane or the extra, it's fuel on the center tank, boost pump on, canopy latched because the canopy is a vital piece. And then you know I learned uh, to fly Learjets as a kid from from a much experienced guy and he uses as we would take the runway he would say spoilers flaps and trim seat belts doors and windows and every single time we took the runway that's what he would say and if we had those things done that learjet was going to make itself into the sky no matter what we did yeah that's good advice for people and people like you that transition from different airplanes several times a week and sometimes different times in a day and you're able to fly completely different airplanes, retractable gear, fixed gear, complex, not complex. And you're able to do it back and forth uh, so quickly and what seems like so seamlessly. I- I'm kind of learning that the way you guys do that uh, so routinely and safely is you have those kinds of checklists, if you will, that in your mind, like, like you just spoke to, right before you take off, four or five things, um, everything else, you've got to have those done. Absolutely. Total agreement. Um, are there any other scenarios that you've had, either cross country or otherwise, that our listeners might enjoy hearing about? Well, yeah, I, you know, there was, uh, I guess, just one other one because people always want to know what's going on with aerobatic airplanes and things like that. And like I said before, I've had no close calls, but I've certainly broken up a bunch of airplanes. And there was a bunch of years ago, I was actually out flying, and in the practice area, I was out in. Arizona, and I was probably about eight or so miles from the airport. And the way that the extra works is there's fuel in the wings and there's the aerobatic tank, which is the tank in the center. And whatever happened, I completely ruptured the center fuel tank. So there was a couple of inches of 100 low lead in the belly of my airplane, and my feet were soaked in 100 low lead. The, the tank had split pretty well. Yikes. And so I'm sitting here, okay, there I was, you know, in the middle of the aerobatic box, eight miles from the airport, and there was so much fumes in the cockpit. I tried to open the side window, but you really, you really can't escape a lot of the fumes. I had switched to the wing tanks and had enough fuel to get back. And on that day, I thought, well, if I make a, if I make a, transi- a transmission back to the tower to tell them what's going on, who knows what's going to happen with uh, the electrical yeah. connections and the sparks in here. So what I elected to do was to turn all of the avionics off and then just come back into the pattern and uh, look for light guns and uh, and landed without incident there and obviously had to, to change a pretty expensive fuel tank. But uh, that was one of those things where in the split second – decision you just have to always think in terms of safety and again it's one of those things where i think atc if you're doing the right thing is going to understand and uh, i called on the phone when i had landed and they said oh absolutely totally understand uh it was the right call and 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 no problem there and so i think that's the thing i'd like to to just leave with everybody is to always make sure that you're trying to do the thing that keeps you the safest first and then everybody else is going to support you in that decision. That's such good advice uh, for you to just look at what's going on in your airplane. You know, we have this uh, sequence, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, and take proper action. And so you figure out what's going on in your airplane. 
and then your best course of action, and you realize there might be a lot of second guessing, and there might be some judgment when you hit the ground or people who've got all day to think about what you did and second guess it. But the bottom line is you're just thinking rationally, doing the best thing you can in the moment and making your best judgment call. And from what I've seen, everybody understands that. And boy, that's, that's such an interesting scenario that you just, you know, it's not in a book anywhere. You're not going to read that one uh, in your operating manual. You just have to think through a little bit of common sense, a little bit of knowing your airplane, and making it through a situation like that safely. Exactly. Well, Michael, thanks. You have some great advice for all of us. And even though we can't all be air racers and travel around the world like you are, we can sort of live vicariously and we can learn from your experiences. So greatly appreciate your time. And uh, we wish you all the best in Abu Dhabi and we'll be rooting for you. Oh, Richard, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you and everybody um, at the Air Safety Foundation and what you guys are doing. It's just fantastic. And I've been a a member of AOPA for longer than I can remember, and I'm a lifetime member, and uh, just so support everything that you guys are doing, um, and also with the You Can Fly initiative that that Mark Baker's just getting ready to debut, which is fantastic. So we love this world of aviation, and uh, we want to keep it growing. So thanks a lot for allowing me to be a small part of your group. Great. Thank you, Michael. Fly safe. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. A great conversation with Red Bull Air Race champion Michael Goulian. Some things that we can all take away from that, even though we're not air racers. I thought what was interesting is some of his biggest challenges were the same kind of things we, as general aviation pilots, face, um, you know, going to and from an IFR scenario where he's got a gear anomaly. And so, you know, we saw how he just, uh, what really strikes me, my takeaway is he just takes command of the situation, whatever it is, not in an abrasive way, you know, and, and, but just in a way that he's confident and in control. And then just do what's necessary, you know, like uh, get a block altitude or, you know, my goodness, if, if he's an American over there willing to land on a Russian military base uh, because of a situation he's got, Certainly that can be instructive for the rest of us that, you know, wherever we need to land or whatever we need to do back here in the States, we should feel confident in doing that and in realizing that, you know, when we get on the ground, there might be some questions and people talk to us. But, but by and large, I've learned that, uh, that people are very receptive to the notion that you were airborne, the time was limited, and you made the best judgment call you could at the time. And um, another interesting point I thought he made is that precision is what keeps him safe at low altitude. Boy, that's just worth pondering and thinking about. And, and as I relate that, I think back to, yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's what kept us safe in the Thunderbirds at the kind of uh, low altitude, high speed aerobatic flying we did was we focused uh, so hard on the precision of every maneuver we did. And that was a big part of the safety there. And um, then, you know, how about that situation where his center fuel tank uh, ruptures? Uh, you know, I, I don't think you find that in a checklist anywhere to not, uh, not transmit anything on the radio. That just comes from thinking through the situation. So his fuel tank ruptures. He sits there and he thinks about it a little bit and he thinks, you know what, um, I don't need any sparks right now. So here's my best course of action. Um, so I really enjoyed uh, listening to Michael and um, no, no, uh, no secret why he's uh, such a tremendous pilot and had such great success and done so safely. And, and we wish him all the best. Thanks for joining us on There I Was. Until next time, 
I'm Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thank you.